Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Started in 2008, Big Think is a kind of online think tank of big ideas from some of the most creative thinkers on the planet. On the Think Again podcast, we revisit these ideas in new and unpredictable ways. Our producers surprised me and my guests with short interview clips from Big Think's archives, ideas that we didn't come here expecting to discuss. I'm very, very happy to be here today with two guests for the very first time in the history of the show, over 100 episodes, Nicole Galland and Neil Stevenson. Nicole is typically a writer of historical fiction and some contemporary fiction, including The Fool's Tale and Iago. And Neil Stevenson is known for a complex, mind-boggling, speculative science fiction, including Seven Eves, Snow Crash, and many other novels. Together, they've written a new novel. It's called The Rise and Fall of Dodo, which is an acronym for Department of Diachronic Operations. It's a massive and massively entertaining epic involving magic, time travel, quantum physics, secret government organizations, and an ancient banking family called the Fuggers, that's spelled with two Gs. Welcome to Think Again, Nicole and Neil. Thank you. Thanks Lovely for, to be here. Thanks for having us on. Yeah. Um, no, so glad to have you. So this is the, you guys um, have written, you worked on one other book together, but this is the first one, I guess, where you're the only two co-authors, right? That's right. Let's talk a little bit about like how how that goes, because I mean, it's a little mind boggling to me. And I know there's a bit of it on the back of the book about how you how you did this. But how do you go about writing a book of this size and complexity together? It's over 700 pages long. It involves multiple characters, multiple kind of um, voices and formats. How, how do you, how do you, where do you begin? Well, Nikki and I have known each other for a while and we had worked together um, previously on one other book. So I think we kind of had a sense of how to work together. And in this case, uh, we began with a pretty clear idea of what the overall arc of the story was going to be, who the characters were, what kind of people they were. You know, we, we keep joking that we need to make up a bunch of stories, a, you know, a bunch of fake drama, uh, so that we could tell entertaining tales of how hard it was to work together. But, you know, it was easy. Uh, in general, Nicole was kind of the, the pathfinder on many of the major sections of the book. And, and so she would produce chunks of it and email them to me, and then I'd make my pass. And and then as far as the overall, the complexity of it was concerned, uh, we just used really prosaic things like uh, spreadsheets to keep track of what happened when. Gotcha. Yeah, it was quite harmonious, and, and harmony doesn't make for good anecdotes. <laughs> well, that, that, that's okay. I don't, yeah, I don't, we don't necessarily need you guys at, at each other's throats. But, but um, I, I guess what I don't understand, you know, Neil, you say you started with a, a pretty clear idea of the story and the major characters, but that had to start from somewhere. Like, does, did, did one of you come up with that, or did you sit, sit down in a room and throw ideas back and forth before you got to that? And then secondly, sort of two-part question, when you guys get down to the sentence level, are there sections that are written by one person and sections by another, or are you guys like co-writing or rewriting each other's sentences? How does, how does that go? So maybe I'll take the first half of that and Nikki can take the second half. That'd be great. 
the the basic idea for the the universe and how it worked is something that popped into my head um, for some reason on a Thanksgiving morning. And then there was a, a few months during which um, the overall stories of who did what when was being kind of refined um, just by kind of kicking it back and forth. So, uh, you know, I think that by the time we actually dug in and started working, it was a reasonably well-oiled pitch and we both had a good shared vision of who the characters were and what the basic plot points were going to be. The The opening sort of third of the book ha- has a, a very clearly laid out, first this happened and then that happened kind of structure when we started writing. And then, as I said, um, Nikki tended to be the person who broke trail on uh, on a lot of the major narrative sections. Yeah, so generally the way that, that we would work is I, I would start out doing a big chunk of something and then which very often included establishing the basic voice of the narrator for that section because as an epistolary novel there's it's told in many different voices um sometimes long form narrative but a lot of other uh slack chats emails uh i was going to say recipes but i don't think we actually ended up with recipes but ve- all sorts of various ways of telling the story so with the um especially with the first several voices that are introduced who tend to do the long form narrative i sort of set those voices but then when i handed them off to neil he adjusted as necessary he there were other voices that he established and that i adjusted as necessary so both of our fingerprints are really all over it i think that people that are familiar with both of our styles could probably go through and like guess oh that must have been neil oh that right, must have been right. nikki but but generally, we were not. There was no proprietary attitude about anything that was going on at all, really. It's you know the result is is wonderful. I mean, it's a it, it first of all, it's a lot of fun to read. There's a lot of humor throughout. You have you have a, yeah you have a great time with uh, the acronyms. Well, and, thank and you. I, was laughing out loud at the section where, you know, the internal, the secret government organization starts to become a little uh, nervous about the ridiculous acronyms that the linguist is coming up with. Um, but I want to dive, I want to dive into uh, a little bit the, the world that you've created here. Um, you guys have basically healed the ancient rift between magic and science or, you know, fantasy and science fiction in a sense. Can we talk a little bit about how that works? I mean, this kind of quantum physics of science and how that all works in the in the novel? Sure. I mean, it's a minor spoiler, but I think anyone who reads the jacket copy can kind of see that coming. So uh, I don't see any reason not to dive into that if you've got questions. Well, no, I mean that's that's my question. I just wonder if oh. you could sort of if you if you could unpack a little bit how how that works and what it meant to you guys as writers to bring together the idea of, you know, fairly well-established concepts of magic with quantum physics, Schrodinger's cat in one uh, universe. Yeah. So there are some really troubling, puzzling features of quantum mechanics that have bothered people ever since they were discovered. And um, so Schrodinger's cat is an example. It's a thought experiment that that illustrates uh, some of those paradoxes without really answering any questions. So there have been a bunch of, of proposals to, to try to explain those mysterious features 
of quantum mechanics, and some of them get pretty weird. And one of the weirder ones I used to think was the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, which I think started with a guy named Hugh Everett in the 50s and um, was seen as being completely insane at the time and totally unsound, but uh, actually is being taken more and more seriously uh, in recent years. And the the gist of it is that um, <clears throat> you can explain a lot of the mysterious features of quantum mechanics by just positing that that there are basically an infinite number of parallel versions of reality that all kind of exist um, close to each other and and kind of run in parallel, and that uh, what you're doing, what what quantum mechanics is doing, is kind of averaging over similar universes right. in a in a particular way. Uh, and that sounds kind of nuts because it leads to this huge proliferation of of universes. But if you can get past that, uh, it does a pretty good job of of making the the paradoxes and the hard to understand things of quantum mechanics just go away. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> that's a th- a thing that I started learning about a few years ago when I was working on Anathem and. You know, it turns out there are people who think about this and write about this, and there are people in the field of metaphysics who think about uh, alternate worlds and the theory of alternate worlds and what that means. So um, it just uh, seemed to me that um, that it, it was a way, as as you put it, to kind of heal the rift, and and that. Uh, in a kind of lighthearted and humorous way, uh, not in a terribly serious way, that we, we, we might be, be able to say, well, you know, maybe magic, you know, never was a mystical or supernatural thing at all, but right. it was just some people figured out a way to leverage this many worlds thing and sort of move between parallel universes in whatever way was was convenient to them. Which, which you know, makes sense because science looks like magic if you don't know what's going on, as does technology. So Yeah, so it just seemed like a, a fun hook for uh, a story, you know. At the risk of getting, like, too deep into quantum physics, I I do have a question that maybe you can help me resolve, which is, with Schrodinger's cat, I how <laughs> I understand quantum physics on the quantum level like I can accept that particles don't behave uh, you know in Newtonian ways like at the level at at the subatomic level yeah. but the idea of the mac- macro world and cats and humans and the narratives of our lives uh existing in parallel universes like I don't understand why that how that would work you know yeah, yeah absolutely that that's one of the the things that makes it paradoxical and hard to understand is exactly the the problem you just mentioned that we can accept it at the the level of of elementary particles but it makes doesn't make any sense when we try to apply it uh, in the case of of macroscopic things and so that's what has occasioned a lot of the philosophizing and thought experiments around quantum mechanics and people have different explanations of why we don't see quantum effects happening on a you know basically in in large warm wet objects right but it's still an open topic of of discussion i mean there are people are seeing now quantum effects happening 
in big, warm, wet things like uh, there's a, a navigational system that birds use to figure out which way is north that appears to leverage quantum uh, effects. There's indications that the olfactory system uses quantum effects and and that there may be some features of the brain that work that way. Huh. Um, so it's still an open question and a really interesting question, you know. And I don't mean to suggest that we're, like, addressing all of that in a terribly, terribly serious way in this book, but it gave us the kind of the the, the leeway to to start playing with it. No, the I mean the yeah the book is is like multiple genres in one. It's you know it's got a very it's it's very plot driven. Um, but at the same time, it ra- you know it raises a lot of interesting questions, and you know maybe this is Nicole's uh, historical, you know, writing background, and I guess also theater background. But there's there's lots of lots of wonderful texture from Elizabethan England, and you know, 13th century Constantinople. I guess it's Constantinople still, right? Yes, yeah, Constantinople. Yeah. I'm more comfortable, obviously, in the historical stuff than I am with the science, but it's very fun to have the leeway to play around with the intersection between science and history. Magic is almost the perfect place to live to put those two things together. Yeah, I mean, it. well, and it's and it's a wonderful and wonderfully specific mashup, I mean, that you guys have going on on multiple levels. And, you know, it's someone, uh, one critic, I think, mentioned, you know, the, the Jason Bourne series, because there's, there's also the sort of... I don't know spy thriller aspect of it as well. It's it's really it's really enjoyable on all those levels. So I think this would be a good place, given our timing and everything, to transition to the the other part of the show, which is sort of a intellectual surprise grab bag, where we're going to have some conversation starters that aren't necessarily directly related to the book, but might bring us back to it or to writing or to interests of of both of yours or not. Um, But there are three short videos. What we do is, you know, we'll we'll watch the first one. They're basically interviews from Big Things Archives. We'll watch the first one, uh, then come back and uh, and start a discussion wherever we begin. So let's start with Salman Rushdie. This is Video Games and the Future of Storytelling. The game that my 13-year-old boy Milan and his friends all seem to be playing right now is this Wild West game called Red Dead Redemption. You know, and, and one of the things looking over, I mean, I don't even pretend to understand what's going on really, but, but one of the things that's interesting about it to me is the much looser structure of the game and the much greater agency that the player has you know, to choose how he will explore and inhabit the world that's provided for you. you know, he doesn't, in fact, doesn't really have to follow the main narrative line of the game at all for long periods of time. There's all kinds of excursions and digressions that you can choose to go on and find mini stories to participate in instead of the, mac, the, ma- the big story, in the macro story. Um, I think that's, uh, that really interests me as a storyteller because uh, I've always thought that one of the things that the, that the internet and the gaming world permits uh, as, story, uh, as, narrative, as a narrative technique is to not tell a story from beginning to end, you know, to tell stories sideways, um, as to give alternative possibilities as stuff that, that, the, that the, the reader can, in a way, choose between. 
you know. Uh, I've, I've always thought of the Borges story, The Garden of Forking Paths, as a kind of model of this, that, you know, the, 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 the Garden of Forking Paths is, is, a, is a story, is a book whose author has gone mad because what he's tried to do is to offer every possible variation of every moment. You know, so boy meets girl, they fall in love, they don't fall in love. That's the first fork, you know, and he wants to tell both those stories and then every variation of every moment down both those lines. And of course, it's like nuclear fission. The, the possibilities explode into millions and billions of possibilities and, and it's impossible to write that book. But it seems to me that in some ways the internet is the garden of forking paths, you know, where, 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 you, where you can have myriad variant possibilities um, offered at the same level of, of, of authority, if you like. So I, mean, I think that's one of the ways in which uh, storytelling could move. And these games, these more free-form games in which the player can make choices about what the game's going to be, you know, become a kind of gaming equivalent of that narrative possibility. It, it feels in a lot of ways, I mean, obviously, I think we both agree with him. Um, and in many ways, Dodo is almost like an origin myth for what it is that he's talking about, because one of the underlying premises, which is how we fold the multiverse concept into the story, is that there are different strands of time that, that each possible iteration of the universe exists on what we call separate strands. And each time you attempt to go back into the past, you are you risk being on a different strand than you were before. So so in a sense, he's describing what, what we actually have going on in the story. Because we have a novel that is written and printed in a book, we can't explore all of those things to their logical conclusion, but or even their illogical conclusion. But we definitely um, sort of set the stage for the sort of thing he's talking about. Yeah. So the um, so our, our our premise was sort of the rules of the the game uh, as we've set them up is that uh, you can't just go back in time and alter one thing and actually have a definite effect on the present because there are many different strands that are sort of alternate pasts that all kind of get to vote on what their shared future is. So it's a little bit like we're doing. We're doing what Salman Rushdie's talking about here, except backwards, going the other way back in time, having to, to go down many forking paths into the past uh, and, and take some action in each one of those forks in order to bring about an effect in the one present reality that, that we live in. It's a very, very subtle reverse engineering. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how, I, I, I guess... <sighs> How do you, as um, and and maybe maybe the, the answer is spreadsheets again. But how do you, as a writer, sort of not go mad in the Borgesian sense, trying to contemplate all of those alternate possible realities? I mean, it seems to me that that writing a novel or writing anything really, there's a certain amount of control that you're exerting and that you're wanting to exert in order to sort of lead the reader, and indeed your book has a narrative line and it, it leads the reader in a particular direction, but you know, when you're dealing with something this, with all of these alternate possibilities, yeah, how do you not go mad? <laughs> well, one, one thing we're claiming in the book is that the witches who know how to do this, who know how to do magic, have got uh, a way of keeping track of this stuff, and it's not perfect, but it's a, a sort of 
calculation device that they right. can use to to make kind of seat of the pants calculations that narrow down the possibilities quite a bit and give them a clue as to what they should and, and shouldn't try to do. And then, again, because it is a book, we get to just tell the, the parts of it that are going to make for a, an enjoyable story. And so we don't have to go down all those forking paths, but we imply the existence of a huge government bureaucracy that's, whose purpose is to, to worry about all that stuff. I, I, I mean, do you think that it sort of fundamentally changes or maybe compromises is too charged a word, but the nature of story and narrative um, to have, like in, in a video game context where you might have not infinite, but many, 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 many possible futures, do, do you think it's even sort of fair to think of that as story anymore? I think it is. I, I, between the two of us, I probably have the more conservative notion of what what a story is because of my theater background. You know, a play is a much more conventional and linear storytelling style where you have to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Um, so it's. I think it's harder for me to break out of that, and, and I have broken out of it very happily in this case. And I think that's partly because if you hearken back to really old school traditional storytelling where people would gather around a fire and swap stories, um, you have, for instance, Greek mythology where there is no single linear narrative that takes you through the entirety of Greek of the Greek pantheon. But there are many, many stories and many characters and everyone interacts in different ways. Not that we're quite as infinite as that here, but we could be. The setup is the setup is there to go in that direction, and even theater, you know, is kind of moving in a direction now. Or, or maybe this isn't even a new thing, but you see things like uh, Sleep No More, in uh, yeah. Do, do you do you know about? Yeah. You want to say a couple words about what that is um, as the Shakespeare geek. I haven't actually <laughs> seen Sleep No More, but it's been described to me multiple times, and it's I'd like I would love to see it. It's a you walk as I understand it, you walk into an an on-site um, I think it's a house. I think it was originally done in a house or a small apartment building. And there are various elements of the story of Macbeth being enacted in different places. And depending on where you wander around, you get the story in different ways, in, diff in a different order, um, from different angles. I was actually in a production of Richard II in college that did something similar where we got, we sort of led people around through a, a Harvard dorm. So yes, that's not that's definitely an experimental element to um, theater. But even back in the in the nineteenth century, I think. Oh my God, I'm about to date myself. Not that I'm from the nineteenth yeah. century. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> um, there's a there's a there's a play that I that I wouldn't call modern. I'll just leave it at that. Called Wojtek, which was originally intended to be performed where all of the scenes would be put into a hat and they would just pull you'd pull out a scene number and then that would be the next scene that was performed and then another number would be pulled out and that would be the scene that was performed uh, but there is definitely a proliferation of that now compared to the history of theater and perhaps it's related to the just the zeitgeist changing uh, with the advent of things like video games. The thing is, like, I feel like there's this tension uh, always in, in literature and, and storytelling between wanting a cohesive narrative, narrative that pulls you along um, as the listener or the reader um, and wanting to sort of dwell in, 
you know, characters' thoughts and moments in a sort of non-linear non way. Um, you know, and I feel like if you've got multiple plots going on at the same time, that, 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 that potentially thwarts or frustrates whatever that hunger is for, for linear narrative clarity, um, that satisfaction you get when it's like, oh, I, yeah. I think I think that you can actually have a happy medium between the two, which we happen to right. do in our story. So I'm a fan of this particular style. There are many different voices. There's many different ways it's told. And if you stick with the long form narrative, you mostly get to have a traditional linear storytelling experience. So you could, if you needed to sort of brush through some of the other things and you'd still get the basic story. But if you want to dwell in the tributaries of the story, um, that's available as well. We're also making a positive effort to kind of go there. We've uh, been working with a startup called Bound, uh, which is at uh, getbound.io. Uh, they've released an app that's designed for enjoying narrative content uh, textually or, or on, in audio form. Um, related to kind of big worlds, sort of gamey type worlds. And so we've uh, begun to, to release some. Uh, there's a term called equals. It's not a prequel. It's not a sequel, but it's an equal, uh, meaning uh, uh, an, a different story in the same universe that happens at the same time. I see. So uh, these are meant to, to read like uh, additional uh, archival material from the annals of this organization telling stories that involve different characters and different storylines from what is in the book. But it's clear from the, from the book that, uh, that this is a big organization and they could have all kinds of different operations running at any one time. And so it's kind of a natural, it's a natural kind of story universe fit for the, the idea of, of exploring uh, different different concurrent storylines. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. So I mean, I guess I guess that's that's in a sense a very natural thing in fiction where you're building an entire world. You know that like which is something that I know you do a lot in your in your books, Neil. That you create an opportunity for the yeah for multiple simultaneous narratives for the central narrative to be decentralized in some way because the world has you know it's it's all encompassing cohesion yeah i mean the that's the thing that sort of geeks love is um that's the whole basis of comic con and <laughs> geek culture in general is the idea of of coherent <laughs> worlds um in which they can go get lost, and it encompasses science fiction and fantasy, and also historical fiction. Yeah, I was just thinking that. Yeah, so all three of those are genres where uh, the essence of why it's exciting and interesting to read is that uh, once you have gone into that world and sort of found your way around, and you're looking at the maps and and learning about the different characters, um, you're not limited to experiencing just a single narrative line within that world, but you can go back and, and read uh, sequels and prequels and equals and, uh, and stay immersed in that world. You know, it's the whole basis for the Marvel universe sure, sure. and the Lord of the Rings universe. And you Yeah, I, I recently reread um, Lord of the Rings with my nine-year-old son and was yet again struck by the incredible 
you know, specificity, not only in inventing languages and races and, and, and all of those characters, but, but in the, the detail with which he describes the physical landscape. And so in that sense, it feels like Tolkien was really a, a pioneer of all that. I mean, just, just talking about, you know, the types of trees that, you know, they're literally 60% of that book must be landscape. Yeah. And landscape and walking. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but it works. Yeah, it works. Um, so I think what we'll do, let's, let's do one more clip. And I think let's go with, let's do Robert Sapolsky on brain regions. So when we look at the world's ills, um, one of the biggest sources of it is us failing to do the right thing when it's the harder thing to do, giving into temptation, giving into impulse, giving into emotional sort of immediacy. And the part of the brain that's most central to whether or not that happens is the frontal cortex. Most recently evolved part of the brain, we've got more of it proportionally or more complexly than any other primate species out there. It's the part of the brain that does impulse control, long-term planning, emotional regulation, does all the stuff where it's the frontal cortex that whispers in your ear saying, do you really, really want to do that right now? I might not do that. You're going to regret it. It seems like a great idea. Frontal cortex about that. Okay, so when we look at our moments of life where there's that enormous temptation to do the impulsive thing and what's going to determine whether the world will be freed of impulsive horrors if only we can all get stronger frontal cortices trained in childhood to be able to hold out where you can have one marshmallow right now, but if you wait, you can get two later and training from early age so that your frontal cortex has the most like fabulous arrow metabolism ever and it could just make you and what the studies suggest is at all sorts of junctures of doing the harder thing yeah having a really robust studly frontal cortex may do you a lot of good there but when you do sort of the truly difficult thing when you see people who are the ones who run into the burning building to save the child in their leap into the river when everybody else is standing there like headless chickens. When you look at those people, they're not doing it because they've got the most amazing frontal cortexes on earth that could reason through the long-term consequences of, oh, what if nobody in society came to the aid of strangers? What they do is they do it automatically. When we do our most amazingly, like wondrous altruistic acts, it's not because we've got the most incredible frontal cortexes on earth that could like reason us. It's because it's out of the realm of the frontal cortex and it's out of the realm of temptation and limbic stuff. We do the harder thing in a case like that because for us, it's not the harder thing. It's become automatic. There's a few things going on in there, but like in, initially, it sounded as if what he was to me as if what he was saying was that was that like lack of in, impulse control is responsible for you know many of the horrors that we perpetrate. Although I to me that that like historically and I don't know from what I see contemporaneously, I would say that we perpetrate humanity perpetrates many horrors through carefully reasoned long-term planning. In a very premeditated way. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that we um, fall back on a bit in the book is using the 
lawful or chaotic, good, neutral or evil from um, from Dungeons and Dragons. Not not directly. I, I, actually, I'm not sure that we ended up citing it in the book at all. But you can really look at how a lot of the characters and the forces work through that filter. Lawful does a lot of good and evil, but so does chaotic. And I think the chaotic is the one that operates without the frontal cortex in place. So you heard it here first. The neurologically informed reading of the the Dungeons and Dragons uh, character matrix. <laughs> so. Explain 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 it a little bit more to me though, like the lawful and chaotic. Because I I so when I was in fourth grade, believe it or not, the kids who were playing Dungeons and Dragons were actually cooler than I was. So I wasn't allowed in their group. So I don't actually I don't remind me of of the. The lawful chaotic division. Well, it's just there's it's a it's a three by three grid um, that kind of it's useful in Dungeons and Dragons for rapidly slotting a character into a particular way of being, but it turns out to be great for real life too. So the one axis is just good, neutral, bad, and the other one is lawful neutral chaotic or <laughs> well it's lawful and chaotic i can't remember what the sure one in the there middle is one. i think it's two in one direction and three in the other oh okay it's been years though so i might be off on that yeah okay i had it in my head as a three by three but i could be wrong uh anyway so like uh you know lawful evil would be a nazi not not like a street nazi but you know <laughs> an uh, actual member of the third reich government. right and um and you can kind of figure out the rest right, from right. there. A, a lot of our um, characters, the witches in the book, tend to be chaotic. They're not subscribing to any one particular... Um, they do what they want to do, pretty much. And they're neutral as well. They're chaotic neutral. There's no... Yeah, I will say that Elizabeth Carpathy is, is wonderful, a wonderfully unpredictable character. Thank you. She's fun. But at the same, t at the same time, she's kind of to the, the point in the video... She is super conscientious about um, certain things that issues that we're not even aware of. So she'll like murder people without worrying about it a whole lot. But there's certain boundaries that she understands you're not supposed to cross when you're using magic. Kind of to Zapolsky's point, th these are just so obvious to her that uh, she has no patience even trying to explain them to to mundanes. It's just like totally obvious. Yeah, I'm not going to waste my time trying to explain it to you people. I think that that's, that's a great place for us to leave it. Um, Neil Stevenson, Nicole Galland, uh, it's been really great talking to you about your book, yes. The Rise and Fall of Dodo. And, and I, wish you, uh, I wish you a great rest of your day in LA. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we've enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks. And that wraps up another episode of Think Again. Um, I hope you're enjoying your summer, and I hope that this show has been an enjoyable part of your summer. Um, I know that these conversations for me just keep getting better and better. And I have this idea, which I mentioned at the end of the last episode. Um, I'm thinking of starting a Facebook group for Think Again, where we can continue the conversation. Um, and bring together a lot of the amazing people who are listening to this show, many of whom have written to me. Um, 
at my email address, jason at bigthink.com. Feel free to write me. Um, let me know if that's something you'd like. If you'd want to join a Facebook group, send me an email or tweet at me at um, bigthinkagain. That's our Twitter handle. And we'll be back next week and hope to have you with us.